Our scripture text this evening is Luke chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. So I invite you to turn there. We are finishing chapter 13 this evening. And I invite you to stand also for the reading of God's holy word. Luke 13, beginning in verse 31. On that very day, some Pharisees came, saying to him, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem." O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And assuredly, I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Let us uh, go to the Lord in prayer now. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the words of Christ recorded for us in the Gospels. We thank you for the clarity that they bring, uh, the understanding that we gain from meditating on the words of our Lord. And we want to become more like our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, conform to his image. We know that that is what you are doing and saving us. So I do pray that as we look at this passage tonight, uh, that that would be the effect, that we would understand it, uh, that we would be conformed to that same pattern by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Uh, Do give us understanding by your Holy Spirit's enlightenment, and we pray this in the name of Christ, Amen. amen. Well, brothers and sisters, there are many things in this fallen world that make us sad, it's appropriate in a fallen world, cursed world as, as this one is, to, to be sad, to weep over loss, over death, and over sin. And while there are many things that should make us sad in general, one of the things that should be the most grievous to our hearts, if we have the heart of Christ, is when sinners are presented with the truth of the gospel and they reject it anyway. This pattern has happened many times in the history of God's people, recorded throughout the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. Time and time again, the people rebelled against the Lord. They rejected the gracious and patient efforts of God to send prophets to warn them, to exhort the people to turn from their sin. But in many cases, at certain times in history, there were not many that did turn. It was sometimes described as a remnant that did turn. And this passage tonight records our Lord's lamentation over the rejection that Jerusalem had been guilty of. They had rejected, by and large, their Messiah. And while many prophets had perished in the holy city over many centuries, now at the critical moment in history, when the Messiah, the deliverer of Israel, had come, the people, by and large, rejected him. This was cause for great lamentation. And as we study this passage tonight, we need to enter into the emotional life of our Lord at this moment, how he laments the impenitence of Jerusalem. 
In our scripture reading from Psalm 119, we read the final verse there. It said, rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. This is the, the heart of the godly man. He, he loves the word of God. He loves God above all. And the word is God's speech to his people. And so he says, I, I cry when people do not keep your law. It affects me. I, I grieve over these things. And Jesus here is grieving over the rejection of the word, the rejection of the Messiah, the word incarnate, uh, at this critical time in history. And so, likewise, if we would enter into the heart of our Lord, we would become less self-centered and self-focused in our concerns, and we would care about the souls of others and uh, the, the sadness, the, the hardness of hearts that we see around us. We would be more moved by these things. And so that is one of the key topics in our passage tonight is Jesus' lamentation. We will look at that. But there is another topic, and that is the topic of our Lord's response to the Pharisees when they said, Herod is trying to kill you. And so I see them as somewhat different topics. They're connected because he talks about Jerusalem, but I want to draw out different applications from both of those sections for us tonight. So let's look first at the opening verses, verses 31 through 33. I'll read those for us again. On that very day, some Pharisees came, saying to him, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. We know that at this time Jesus was journeying near Jerusalem. He was not yet at Jerusalem at this point. And as he's getting closer, the Pharisees come to him, they approach him, and they give him this warning. They say, you better get out of here, because Herod is trying to kill you. Now you wonder, what was their intention with this? If we've been studying how the Pharisees act in the Gospel of Luke, I think we would be on good grounds to perhaps make the assumption that their motives are less than pure in giving this warning. It's true, I don't know their hearts, but I'm just studying the Pharisees in this gospel, and it's not usually a good thing. No doubt there were some Pharisees who came to faith, some who did repent, it seems. There's a few examples of that. But the overwhelming number of descriptions are quite negative. For example, in chapter 11, uh, verses 53 through 54, uh, this is what the Pharisees were doing to Jesus. This is how it's described. And as Jesus said these things to them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently. And to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. So that's, that was their motive uh, in many of these cases towards Jesus. It was not good. One of the other reasons I don't think that their motives were pure and that Jesus did not receive their motives in that way as some sort of a friendly warning is because he says, you go tell him what I'm doing. Because he's, in other words, it's almost like he's saying, you're in league with Herod. Just, just go back to your, your, your buddy over there and tell him, I'm doing my work and I'm not stopping. He says, you go and tell that fox what I'm going to do and what I'm going to keep doing. Perhaps the Pharisees were plotting the downfall of our Lord with Herod. There may have been some conspiratorial workings here to find a way to get rid of Jesus and Herod didn't want Jesus around, the Pharisees didn't want Jesus around, and so even though they were maybe at times enemies, they had a common enemy at this point that would have united them at this time. Now I think in this statement we learn something of the boldness of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Jesus was not a timid man. He was fearless. He didn't fear Herod. He didn't fear the Pharisees. He didn't fear Pontius Pilate. As a sinless man, Jesus was not affected in the least by the fear of man. Didn't didn't affect him whatsoever. And one of the ways we see Jesus' boldness is how he calls Herod out. He calls him a fox. This is one of those unique instances in the Gospels where Jesus name calls. Uh, In essence, he uses a term. He calls Herod the name of this creature, this animal. And you have to remember that this is a, a time in which the First Amendment did not exist Uh, There could be consequences to saying such things. Uh, Now people can just bash the president up and down, call him all kinds of terrible names, and nothing's going to happen. But back then, I mean, if this word gets around, that he's saying this about Herod or uh, just rejecting Herod's concerns, Herod could potentially go after him. There are things that could get you executed in very short order in certain cases. This is one of the few times where Jesus seems to name call, as it were. Maybe there's a better term for it, but he applies this term to Herod as a fox. One of the other instances, of course, is when uh, Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees. He calls them whitewashed tombs. That's not an endearing description, of course. And why did he call him a fox? What was he getting at? And I've tried to give this some thought. You know, one of the obvious things that comes to mind is that foxes are sly and cunning. How do they get their prey, they, they prowl about secretly, quietly in order to harm the prey, to take the prey. And that's certainly uh, fitting for Herod. He was a malicious man, a man of ill intent towards, we see uh, how different people were treated by Herod in the gospel. Uh, and certainly that is probably part of what Jesus had in mind. Another reason perhaps Jesus calls Herod a fox is because Herod was ultimately of little significance. And I draw this from just one other parallel biblical example of where a fox is mentioned in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 3. And, and I don't know whether this connection uh, should be made or not, so I'll leave it to you to consider. But when the uh, children of Israel were fixing the walls of Jerusalem, they were getting mocked. And one of the mockings came from Tobiah the Ammonite, and he was making fun of their wall. And he said in Nehemiah 4, verse 3, Whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. It's at least interesting to see, of course, that in this case, the idea is that a fox is a very light creature. Uh, And so the idea was that it would break down the wall if it came up upon it. Whether or not Jesus had that in mind, I can't say for sure, but I I would say that a fox is a very different thing than a lion, isn't it? We think of how lions are described in the scriptures, and that is a a symbol of of true power and strength. Fox, not so much. And I do think that Jesus is dismissive of Herod. He is dismissive of Herod having this attempted plan to kill him. He says, I don't care what Herod's doing. You just go tell that fox, I'm doing my work. Nothing's getting in the way of that. Jesus is committed to his mission. And that is another way in which we see his boldness. He, He says... He says, today, tomorrow, and the third day, this is what I am doing. I am here to cast out demons. I am here to perform cures. And he says, I am not going to stop what I'm doing. And so Jesus' commitment to his mission is such that he is not concerned about what's going to happen to him as long as he is doing the will of his heavenly Father. 
Likewise, as we think about the mission that Jesus has given any of us, we need to have that same kind of commitment. We don't let things get in the way. We're not going to be obstructed from what our Lord has called us to do. Despite the hostility of others, the threats of others, we continue on if we would follow in the footsteps of Christ. And nothing's going to harm us as long as the Lord has, us, has something for us to do. It's not going to, nothing's going to happen to us. Nothing was going to happen to Jesus until the appointed time. George Whitfield, the 18th century evangelist of the Great Awakening, he once said, we are immortal until our work is done. And of course, that's true. We, we really are. There is nothing that can harm us. Nothing's going to take us out of this present life until we have done every single thing the Lord Jesus has ordained for us to do. And so we need this kind of boldness cultivated within us if we would be conformed to the image of Christ This is what Jesus' servants should be characterized by, is this kind of boldness. Now we know that was not always the case, right? We we know that in the Gospels we have numerous instances of where Jesus is bold and his disciples are cowardly. Remember that Peter denied Christ three times like a cowering puddle before the servant girl. He just fell apart before the servant girl when he was asked, do you know this man, right? He He was not fearless. But where the Holy Spirit of God is poured out, those who were once cowardly people become bold. As Proverbs 28 verse 1 says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Again, lion, strong, symbol of true strength. And thankfully, by the power, powerful working of the Holy Spirit, the Peter that was perhaps trembling before the servant girl, became later on the Peter that stood before the Sanhedrin and and preached the gospel, right? Remember Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. That's what happens when you spend time with Jesus, brothers and sisters. You become bold. May it be that as we spend time with Jesus in the fellowship of the word and prayer and in walking with him, that we become those who can say, no matter what the threats, I am doing the will of my master and nothing is going to stop me. Now that leads us into Jesus' lament about Jerusalem and he he gives this statement at the end of verse 33 that is almost like sarcastic humor. I'm not exactly sure the way in which it was said, but I find it kind of... Uh, sarcastic or ironic, and he says, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. What a sad commentary on the state of Jerusalem. He's, He's basically saying, prophets of God are safe outside Jerusalem. That's a pretty sad commentary. A sad commentary on the apostasy and the impenitence of that present generation, that generation that Jesus had called an evil and adulterous generation. He says, you go too close to that holy city, prophets get killed. And that's what had happened many times. And so now we look at the the lamentation of, of verse 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and Stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Briefly, I want to 
explain how some have used this passage as an argument for a particular perspective of free will that I do not believe is in accord with the Scriptures. People have used this passage to say, Jesus tried and tried and tried, but he just couldn't get them to repent. He didn't have the ability to get the people of Jerusalem to repent. That This, this particular perspective of free will that, that the Lord can only go so far, but eventually the human will can frustrate the plans of God. And I don't think we should view this passage in that way. Jesus indeed did say that he, he wished to gather the children of, of, of Jerusalem under, under himself just as the hen would gather her children under his wings. But how should, how should we then understand what Jesus' language refers to when he says you were not willing? Well, I would say two, straight, two very simple things in response. The first is this. As long as the fallen human will is left unchanged by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, the only thing it will do is resist the word of God. Until that spirit of God comes and brings life and renews that will, that will will resist the truth of God. And so it's not a surprise that if that didn't happen, that Jerusalem, by and large, resisted the word of God. Secondly, when we think about Jesus' will or Jesus' desire here, we need to understand this to be describing his will of desire. It was, it was his heart longing to see the people of God repentant, receiving the Messiah, walking in his ways. Now we know that in God's ordain, ordination of this whole situation, how else would he be crucified unless there was a rejection of him? How else would he accomplish the redemption of the world unless there had been this rejection by the leaders of the people and by many others. But it was his heart desire, his heart desire, his heart longing was for the repentance of God's people. And this kind of heart desire that God has is described in numerous places in the scriptures. Ezekiel 18 verse 23 is one such example when the Lord is speaking to the rebellious house of Israel and he he says in Ezekiel 18 23, do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? as if God delights in that, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live. This is God's desire for his people, is that they would walk in his ways. And of course, God enables this by his sovereign working. And so some, of course, in Jerusalem probably did receive this this new life. Perhaps a Nicodemus could be an example of one such person. Uh, And so Jesus' purposes were not thwarted. The God's purposes were being fulfilled, even in the rejection of Jerusalem. But it was indeed uh, an example of what the hardness of hearts ends up producing. The the sad and terrible rejection of the Messiah who had come. This was was not just any prophet. This was the final prophet of God, the Savior of, of God's people come in the flesh. And so this was an occasion to lament the hardness of heart. This was not just a pagan land sunk in idolatry and evil. This was God's people. This was the holy city. And we see Jesus describing that of other cities, even in Galilee. He says, you know, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. He says, for if the works that had been done in you were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, there would have been this repentance. They would have repented at this. And one might bring up the example of Nineveh. You know, you could take the story of Jonah going to Nineveh and the people have repented. 
And who are these people to repent? They have have very little revelation. They don't have all of the the covenants and the promises and the, the law of God. They have none of that, but they repent. And here it is, Jerusalem, the people of God, the holy city, impenitent, hardened against the word of God, hardened against the Messiah of God. It is a sad and grievous thing to see sinners reject the truth when they have heard it, when they've had access to it. And that grievousness of that rejection is made all the worse when they've had maybe years upon years of access or generations upon generations of access. Think of the child who grows up in a Christian home. They have three generations of faithful Christians before him or her. And then that child rejects the faith. They leave that whole heritage behind. How tragic, how grievous to leave behind such a a blessed lineage, a heritage of of faith. Now, as, as you apply that corporately to Jerusalem, Jerusalem had a really good heritage, didn't it? The blessings bestowed upon this city, and I was, I was looking again at how the Psalms describe Zion and Jerusalem, and it's so exultant, it's so, uh, there's so many blessings associated with the holy city, and I just looked at a few of them, and you remember Psalm 48, uh, verses 1 through 3, it says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. In his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north the city of the great king. God is in her palaces. He is known as her refuge. Then you go to Psalm 87, verses 1 through 3. It says, His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. It was his God's favorite place, Zion, Jerusalem. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. And how sad now, how, how much of a lament should this produce to say the, the city in which glorious things of thee were spoken are now, we're now lamenting, the Messiah is lamenting the city and its downfall and its impenitence. This is a, a serious and sobering of example of what apostasy looks like on a corporate level. When the people of God reject his word time and time again, when they harden their hearts against his truth, when they give in to the deceitfulness of sin repeatedly, despite the warnings, they face a very terrible judgment. And the Lord Jesus laments this. One can think perhaps of the lineages of some of the great uh, churches in the Western world. You think about the Church of England, which with whatever problems you might think about from the time of the Protestant Reformation, was nevertheless a, a, an amazing church in which many good things came from. And then to learn that one of these great old cathedrals is now a mini-golf course with a slide in it. And you're thinking, that's what's happened to the church? That's what, that's what happened at one of these cathedrals down in southern England. We're thinking, where's the glory of the church? Where, where are the, the old hymns being sung? Where is the faithful preaching of the word? Where, where is just the belief in the 39 articles, which is a very good document in many ways? It's, it's gone. It's, it's replaced with mini-golf because they can't get anybody to come to church. How sad. And so when we see apostasy, when we see the church of Jesus Christ in a suffering condition, turning from the truth of God to idols, does it awaken in us a sense of grief? Do we weep with our Lord when we see such rebellion and apostasy and turning from the truth? We need the heart at that point of Psalm 137. We had those other two psalms celebrating Zion, but now we've got to go to Psalm 137. 
And here are the the people of God. They've been brought out of Jerusalem. They're not even in the holy city anymore. They're at the rivers of Babylon. And what does the psalmist do? Psalm 137, verses 1 through 2. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. The glory of Zion that was once there had been turned to shame. It was, it was just a, a, a shell of what it used to be. The city, in this case, in the Babylonian captivity, uh, had been pillaged and destroyed. The place that God had ordained to be a glory and an honor and a praise to him was now in ruins. As Psalm 80 says, the boars are running through the vineyard, just ripping it apart. This once beautiful vineyard all decked out, perfectly cultivated and kept. There's just wild boars ripping it apart, eating things up. And so it's appropriate, brothers and sisters, that we join in our Lord's lament when we see these same things, as we see the broken down condition of God's people, God's city, God's worship, God's church. And so it should then be also our desire that we would see the restoration of God's people, the restoring, the reviving. That's what we have Psalm 126 for. You have all these different Zion Psalms and Psalm 126 is setting forth that picture that those that are going to sow the seed in tears, it's like a seed that goes into the ground and they're going to reap joy because God's going to restore. And so there's a very important place for us, brothers and sisters, in lamenting these things. We need to enter into this lament more and more and be realistic about what we're seeing. Now, the ultimate end of Jerusalem's impenitence was desolation and destruction. This is what verse 35 is prophesying. Our Lord says, See, your house is left to you desolate, and assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a very foreboding warning our Lord gave of the ultimate uh, desolation of Jerusalem, and I do believe that, in, especially in view here, is the destruction that is soon to come in AD 70. Just within a few decades of time, he's saying there is going to be this desolation, what's called the abomination of desolation that Jesus speaks about in his Olivet Discourse, was going to take place. He prophesies in Luke chapter 21 that the holy city will be trampled until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled, until that uh, time comes in which all the Gentiles have been brought in. Uh, that the holy city was to be trampled. And in Luke 19, Jesus mentions this again. Uh, This is in his triumphal entry, which was in many ways a joyful occasion. We actually sang about that. Hosanna, loud Hosanna. But in Luke 19, 41 through 44, Jesus has another occasion to lament what is going to take place. Here's what he says. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation." This was the problem. The people of Jerusalem, they missed the day of visitation. The day in which the incarnate Son of God, the Messiah, walked among them. John the Baptist had told them about it. He had said, 
I'm just a forerunner. I am preparing you guys for what is coming. You need to be baptized. You need to repent of your sins. The kingdom of God has come. The Messiah is right around the corner. I'm not even worthy to touch his sandals. You need to listen up. That's what he was saying. But many of them did not. They, they scoffed at Jesus. They ignored him. They rejected him. And this brings us back to the opening section of chapter 13. I actually do see that the beginning of chapter 13 with the repent or you will all likewise perish statement is very much connected to how this chapter ends, this lamentation uh, taking place here. And what we reflected upon in the beginning of Luke 13 was that there is a limited window of time in which we have to respond to the word of God. There is, in a sense, a day of visitation. It's not going to be, in this case, the visitation of the incarnate Son of God coming down from heaven until his return, of course. But the day of the Spirit's visitation, the Spirit speaking to us through the word of God, is indeed an opportunity and a time at which we have to respond, to repent, and to believe the gospel. And this should certainly lead us to reflect upon the opportunities each one of us has to respond to the word of God. What have we done when the word of God has visited us? How have we responded to those precious opportunities to repent and believe the gospel? There's a day coming which our Lord speaks of, and I do believe he's primarily speaking about AD 70, but there is also a day in which he is going to return. And on that day, the word of God says that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I don't, know that every, I don't believe that everybody that says that on that day will say it willingly and with love in their hearts. Some will have to just say it because it's true. But may it be that every single one of us in this room on that day say it with love, say it with faith, that he is Lord of all, he is King of all, and he is Savior of us. And so the day of judgment, the day of Christ's return hastens, brothers and sisters. I don't know when that day is, but I say it hastens because the word of God calls us to be ready for that day, and that day in which we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Are you ready for that day? Have you put your trust in the Savior who alone can redeem you from your sins? Have you repented of those many sins, knowing that you have no way to cleanse yourself, but that only the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, can cleanse you of those sins? May it be that not a single one of us miss the day of visitation. That none of us neglect the merciful opportunities God provides for us to respond to the word of God with faith. And that's why Psalm 95, it warns us, it says, Today, if you hear the voice of God, do not harden your hearts. How dangerous that would be. The word of God has come to you. Receive it. Believe it. And so that is our Lord Jesus' call to us, brothers and sisters. We certainly, we see the need for for growing in the boldness of Christ. We, We see our need for entering into the lament that our Lord has as he looks at the broken down condition of God's people. We need to enter into that. But we also need to consider our own response to the opportunities that we have to the call of the gospel. Amen. So let us pray together now. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the words of our Lord Jesus Christ that come with such power and relevance to us. And we do ask that you would make us fearless like our Lord Jesus Christ was and is to stand for the truth, to stand for righteousness, to be committed to the will of God above all, no matter what the opposition. We ask that also you would teach us to 
lament and grieve when we see the hardness of heart, when we see rejection of your word, when we see sinners choosing sin over Christ, that these things would affect us, that they would break our hearts, and, and that we ourselves would have a, a humble, a, a broken and contrite heart towards your word, that none of us would harden our hearts to your word. Grant that every single one of us would humble ourselves to receive the message of the gospel in faith and with love for Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.